Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Thank you very much for that introduction, Dr. Shaddix. Uh, fewer things are more frightening than preaching student chapel, but I was inoculated against it a little bit because I had to ask my professor for permission to marry his daughter. So that kind of, that, that helps a little bit. But it's a wonderful thing to get to share God's Word with you this morning. Uh, it's my prayer that the Word does some work in our hearts today. Um, as Dr. Shaddix mentioned, I have the great privilege of being the pastor of West End Baptist Church, which is a 100-year-old church plant. In 1923, actually right around this time of year, three churches from Vance County, they all got together in order to take the Great Commission seriously, this, this thing that we strive for, to make disciples of all nations, to bring worship where worship didn't exist. And so they founded what became West End Baptist Church. Like a lot of church plants today, they met in a local school building for a time until they could raise the funds to buy a building. When they first met as a church, they had a special dedication service. And so I'm telling you a little bit of this backstory because I want you to think about beginnings and dedications. Beginnings and dedications are times that we set aside to dedicate something for a special purpose. We, we start at the outset by saying what something is for and what its purpose is and what its goal is. Dedications are also important for us to look back and find an anchor when we've lost our way, or we feel confused or dazed. And so this psalm that I'm preaching today, Psalm 30, it's a dedication psalm. I want you to imagine the community of God's people reading this psalm, returned from exile. They're looking back on their history from the rubble of a destroyed Jerusalem and from a captured temple, and they need to know where their hope lies. Israel this time existed in a shadow of its former glory, and these folks would have read these psalms and remembered that even in the rubble and in the suffering, they still had the hope of an anointed one, a son of David, a Messiah, who would come to save them. So with that background, let's read God's Word together from Psalm 30. It's a tradition at West End Baptist Church that we stand for the reading of God's Word, so if you're willing and able, I'd ask for you to stand while we read Psalm chapter 30. This is God's Word. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. 
You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is God's word. Please join me in prayer before we begin. Father, thank you for Psalm 30. Thank you for being the God who turns mourning into dancing. Your name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So David, in this dedication psalm, is showing us that the purpose of the house is the worship of God because of the Lord's salvation. And that salvation, we know on, on this side of the New Testament that this salvation is given to us through the resurrection of Jesus. That's what David is getting at here. It's what the apostles see as the purpose of the psalms. We've been preaching through the psalms as a seminary community this semester, and if Peter were to preach the psalms to us, he would go to Psalm 16, like he did in Acts chapter 2, and he would say this, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, He, being David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David is is dead and gone. Therefore, these statements that we read today are, are prophecies about the son of David, King Jesus. That is who we celebrate today. So when David the prophet speaks in these psalms, and in Psalm 30 in particular, we can hear the voice of Jesus, the true king, and the anointed one. As we jump in, look with me at that superscript. It says, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. Like I said briefly before, this is a song of dedication. Depending on what translation you read, it may say either of David's house or of the temple. And for those of us in Christ, we can rejoice in the fact that for us it is both to be in the Lord's house is to be in the house of the Lord's anointed. To be in the house of the son of David, Jesus, is to be in the house of God. The house of the Lord is where the Lord sets his presence, especially to bless. And as the body of Christ, those of us who are in fellowship with Jesus and share in his resurrection life are indeed that temple of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know? that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you. In Christ, the house of the Lord's anointed and the house of the Lord are united into one body where his presence dwells. And the scriptures say that the church is that house. And we got our start at the very first Easter that we celebrated just a few weeks ago when Jesus rose up from the grave to draw us up. We are his temple because we share in the resurrection life of Jesus' body. And just as David's house was dedicated for the Lord's worship, it is our purpose to be about the worship of the Lord. So let's follow David's fourfold dedication in Psalm 30. The house of the Lord, the temple, David's house, the house of the anointed one, is dedicated to the worship of Jesus because he's saved us from death, from wrath, from pride, and despair. It's all because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So look with me in verses 1 through 3, and we'll see this first unfolding, that we can lift up the Lord, we can extol Him, because He has raised us out of death. Verse 1 says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me out. 
The king in verse 1 is lifting up the Lord, exalting Him and praising Him because He's been rescued. God's goodness and excellence is clearly on display in salvation. When David says extol, that word simply means just lift up, not in the sense that I could lift up this Bible. We can't lift up the transcendent God of the universe, but we can lift up our hands and praise to Him. We can magnify Him in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions. Our church has recently finished a, a series on Psalms, and in Psalm 27, we, we saw that the reason David was motivated to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, to seek after Him in the temple is because the Lord hid him and concealed him and lifted him up high upon a rock. The Lord saved him and rescued him, and that is what made the Lord sweet and lovely and worthy of praise. And so, seminary student or, or even professor, what makes the Lord beautiful to you? What makes him worthy of praise and worship? What makes you want to lift the Lord up? What makes the Lord delightful to you? Be careful not to get lost in, in subtle theological disputes or even our own hobby horses and be tempted to forget that the Lord is worthy of lifting up because He has lifted us out of death. That is what makes the Lord delightful. The rest of verse 1 down through verse 3 shows us that David cried out to the Lord and he was delivered. He was healed. He was brought up from Sheol. His enemies who wanted David dead did not prevail. He was healed from the disease of death. That word Sheol, that, that lovely, broad, and perhaps vague Hebrew word for the realm of the dead. David was headed for death. And indeed, he writes here that it makes it seem like he was dead, but the Lord lifted him up out of the grave. And this is the Christian hope that God delivers us from death. This is the Christian's stance that crying out to God for help and worshiping him for his salvation. And we know that we were headed for grave in the pit just like everybody else. We live in a world that is paralyzed by the fear of death today. We don't like to talk about it. We do everything that we can to avoid it. We live as if we will live forever. And we have these cute little sayings like, he kicked the bucket or he passed away to avoid mentioning the fact that we die. And in this confusion and in this denial of death, eventually we do have to reckon with it. How will we prepare for it? Well, Christians have the right view and the definition and the hope for death. We know how it came about that death is truly awful and that death came as a result of our rebellion against God. As Romans 5, 12 says, that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Death is for all of us, but beloved friends, we can have a sure and certain hope that death is not the end, that we can defeat death. And this hope is true for us because Jesus went before us. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 30 by being restored to life after going to the grave. We can and we must lift up the Lord because he rescues us from death, that inescapable human problem. There was a son of David who never sinned but who died for us so that we can experience resurrection with him. So cry out to the Lord for help and know that he is the God who draws us up when we can't draw ourselves up. When we cry out to the Lord, find help in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. So lift up the Lord because he's raised us out of death. Let's look at the second unfolding in verses 4 and 5, that we can lift up the Lord, we can extol him because he has raised us out of wrath. 
David, in verses 4 and 5, he turns to the saints. He's talking to the people now. He's talking to the community of people around him. And he tells them to sing praises to the Lord. Because, you see, friends, David's salvation is never about just himself. It's not a him and Jesus kind of thing. It always involves community. It involves others. I imagine being the poet that David was, he might have had some introverted tendencies. Some of my artistically inclined friends are that way, and I just see that being the case. But even if that were the case, he still got this, that God's purposes from the very beginning are to have a worshiping community of folks joyfully encouraging one another and and praising the Lord together and experiencing the joy of salvation in life together. When you read the word saints there in verse 4, the idea that David is trying to get across is that these are people that the Lord has set his special loving kindness upon. What makes them saints, it's not their own holiness. It's not their theological knowledge or training. It's the fact that the love of God has gone to them first. It has saved them and it makes them precious. It transforms them to be able to to show forth the very loving kindness that the Lord has poured out on them. And so if you trust Jesus as your King and Savior today, God calls you His saint. He identifies you as the one on whom He has set His loving kindness upon so that you can show that loving kindness to a world that so desperately needs it. Your identity isn't as a a, a student or a, a son or a brother or a husband or anything else, first and foremost, than it is one whom God has set his loving kindness. So these saints, these people who are loved by God, are to give thanks to the holy name of God because they have the right view of God's character and because they have Christian hope. There's no better way to think about suffering, as these saints do in verses 4 and 5, than the Christian way. Let's look at this view that they have of God's character first. They see that Christians are to worship the Lord because, in verse 5, His anger is but for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. We put the redemptive discipline of the Lord in its right perspective. Friends, God's anger is a controversial topic. We live in in a cynical world, and we don't like to talk about this just like we don't like to talk about death. To many people, God's anger seems unfair. The world will tell us that we're all basically good people. But the truth is that the world and ourselves, absent the influence of Jesus, are are deeply self-deceived and rebellious people. We're bad off. We're deeply bent toward evil. And naturally, humans are inclined to set themselves in opposition to God and even hate Him because we want to be God. And because of that, our our perfect and holy and righteous God is righteously angry. But for those of us who trust in Jesus, God the Father didn't turn His anger toward us. God the Son, Jesus Christ, He took on our sin and He suffered on the cross to satisfy justice. For the joy that was set before Him. Jesus joyfully took upon what was meant for us. And so now the discipline of of God that we do experience is, is momentary. It is brief and shaping. We can put this life, whether you live to be 25 or 105, you can put it in perspective because his anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. God's redemptive discipline isn't angry, but it's purposeful, even if it's mysterious and unknowable to us on this side of our brief life. Just in the same way that the discipline of good fathers is never lasting and it always is for the good of the child. 
For a good father, the father knows that he doesn't just give the kid what he wants because he's shaping him into the man or woman that that child is meant to become. And so God's redemptive discipline has a purpose, and it is to make us satisfied in the infinite creator and sustainer and savior and his favor that lasts an eternal lifetime. God will never let go of his beloved people, those saints on whom he has set his loyal love, his loving kindness. He will never forsake them, and he will always be favorably disposed to them, even in discipline. Weeping may remain. David tells us that it may even tarry for the night. Weeping may may pitch up a, a sleeping bag and spend the night with you. But the truth is that joy, joy comes in the morning. And so if you find yourself weeping in the night right now, if you're suffering or depressed or isolated or angry by the size of this crowd, it statistically is likely that there are a lot of folks who are suffering and who are weeping and who are suffering. Know that that weeping has an expiration date. Friends, this section is addressed to the saints. Verse 4 says that, oh, you his saint, oh, the Lord's saints are to sing praises to the Lord. And there's a reason this section is addressed to the community. Because the Christian community worships and it helps us put our situation in perspective. Your weeping may be intense. Your night may be very long. And it is our task as the Christian community, as, as the saints of the Lord, to stay the night with you as long as the weeping may last. If weeping tarries for the night, the church ought to tarry the night with you. If you have a Christian brother or sister who is weeping through the night, join them. Weep with those who weep and remind them that joy does come in the morning. One of the blessings of getting to regularly worship with with older saints is that they have experienced a lot more suffering and struggling than I have in my brief 20-something years of living. Nothing helps dissolve doubts and cynicism like seeing someone who's recently lost their spouse of over half a century continuing to worship, trusting in Jesus because it's the only way that they know through. A lot of these folks are wiser and more world-weary than I am, but they worship. Honestly, as I think about this, this may be part of the cure of our generation, my generation's temptation to deconstruction and to cynicism. What else can pull you out of that inward spiral of doubt and cynicism and bitterness that wars against the faith of so many today? I think the answer is to look around, to look outside of yourself and to see the worshiping community that's full of saints, yes, but also sinners and sufferers who are clinging to Jesus and who have done it and can show you that you can do it. This is an exhortation to the saints. It's the task of each member of the church and every Christian. Remember that we worship because Jesus' resurrection puts our situation in perspective. God's discipline is temporary and our weeping, it has an expiration date. And it is our responsibility to remind one another of that truth. It's why we sing both to the Lord and also to one another. You need the Christian community. You need the saints, the ones on whom the Lord has set his loving kindness to remind you of these truths. We need to be reminded that because Jesus died and rose again, Though weeping tarries for the night, joy comes in the morning. So lift up the Lord, because he has raised us up out of wrath and into love and reconciliation and family. We also need to remind each other that we need to lift up the Lord because our own hearts are prone to pride and to the forgetfulness that comes with it. 
And so that's where we're going to look next. In verses 6 through 10, we're going to see the third unfolding, that we can lift up the Lord because He's raised us up out of pride. Verse 6 shows us David's example of pride. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. David's essentially saying, I am the king. I am unstoppable when things are going well for him. Pride is that tendency to think that we don't need God. Pride tells us that we aren't desperately in need of grace every moment, that we can make it work of our own cunning and hard work. Pride tells us to forget about the majesty and holiness and goodness of God, and it tells us to look at our own work or ability or accomplishment or prosperity. And pride is sneaky. Pride can sneak up on men after God's own heart like David. You know the story of Bathsheba. You know the reason Psalm 51 was written. It's because David in his pride thought he could take matters into his own hands. In the same way, pride can even sneak up on MDiv students and MA students and PhD students and pastors and missionaries and counselors and scholars. We know stories of this taking place. And what pride tells us is that we don't need Jesus and we don't need Jesus' people. It tells us that we shall never be moved. That pride almost kills David. But in verse 7, David recognizes this. It is only ever by the Lord's favor that we receive any blessing in life. And David comes to this realization. It is because of the Lord's abundant goodness that we are breathing right now. It's because of his abundant goodness that we can think about going to forks after this to have a nice pork shop. It's only because of the Lord's favor that you have a job or family or kids or the opportunity to get schooling here. And David recognizes this in verse 7 that he makes our mountain stand strong. Will you recognize that it is only the Lord's favor that gives us any semblance of strength and life and vitality? Or will it take the Lord's discipline, however brief and fleeting but severe, to recognize that the Lord is the one who holds you up? So how does David respond to God turning his face away from David's pride? In verse 7, he, he hides his face, and David is dismayed, and so it leads him to this prayer in verses 8 through 10, and he cries out to the Lord. He pleads for mercy. He recognizes that he is in great need. He repents, and he cries out to God. This is the Christian way to respond when we are brought low, when we are humbled, regardless of whether it's because of your own sin or the sin of another, whether you are a, a sufferer or a sinner in a situation, you can always cry out to God. So turn to the Lord and cry out. In verse 9, David asks this question. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? David is saying, what usefulness is there in my death? What's the point in it at all? The dirt can't sing praise to you. It can't tell others of your goodness. And this is where David nails the issue for us, is that he recognizes that the fulfillment of his life all culminates in the worship and the proclamation of God's loving kindness, his loyal love. But he needs the Lord's help to worship because he feels like he's dying. And it's so difficult to worship when all we see is our own situation. He has to find hope in the face of death and intense spiritual warfare. And friends, this comes home for us every day and every week. Did you know that when you gather on Sunday, 
It's not just to prepare for the spiritual warfare that you're going to engage in later on in that week. It's not just to load up on some some Bible verses and not just to pray for your week upcoming, but you're actually doing spiritual battle in that moment at that 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning and end those times where you're speaking to your Christian friends. Because the war that is being fought, the true conflict in the universe is not being fought on a national level. You won't hear folks talk about it on CNN or on Fox or on Twitter. The war isn't waging there. No matter how crazy the politics get or no matter how crazy the social justice scene gets, the war is a totally different kind of conflict. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And those cosmic powers over this present darkness and those spiritual forces of evil, the ground they're striving for is your heart and my heart. The the strategic position that the kingdom of darkness is trying to occupy is your heart and my heart. And so, Christian friend, when you sing songs like you just did a few minutes ago, and when you pray, and when you hear God's Word proclaimed, and when you take communion, and when you watch a baptism, and when you talk to your Christian friends throughout the week, you are doing spiritual warfare. You are strengthening our own hearts that are so prone to wonder. We are strengthening our weak and rebellious heart against pride. We need help to have hope. We need the grace of Jesus and all of his gifts of of the word, of prayer, of the ordinances and community to resist our heart's tendency to turn in on itself, to be selfish and self-exalting. So look with me in the last two verses to see how David responds to the grace that God gives. But before we do that, remember, you can lift up the Lord because he has raised us out of pride and into life-giving awe at his very own self. So these last two verses in Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12, are just celebrations and expressions of David's hope in the promise, David's hope in in the son that would come and reign forever, David's hope in Jesus. David's mourning over his own suffering and sin has turned into dancing. Yep, that's right, all these Baptist folks in here, David talks about dancing in the Scriptures. The expression of joy that, that transforms, that, that, that leaves our souls and gets into our bodies can't help but make us move a little bit. And that's what David experiences here. His mourning clothes, his sackcloth and ashes have been changed into gladness. He's been given a whole new outfit. His despair has been changed into hope. But think about the way that he's putting that. Think about your own experience of, of despair. It doesn't feel like a shirt. It doesn't feel like a pair of pants. It feels like something that, that dwells deeply inside you. It feels more, more I don't know, internal than a, just a pair of clothes, but the Lord is the one who is able to draw that out of us, to take it off of us, and to, and to give us new clothes, clothes of gladness, clothes of the joyous righteousness and the glory of Jesus. Only the Lord is able to treat our, our despair and, and our hopelessness of our condition. And he's, not, he's the only one who's able to take those clothes off and give us new clothes. We can put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and we can bear with one another, and we can sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other, and we can radiate the goodness of Jesus because of what he has done for us. We don't change our own clothes, he changes our clothes for us. He, he turns our sackcloths 
into gladness. So look with me at at verse 12. All of David's shining, brilliant gladness, his fancy new worship outfit, his, his dancing, all results in worship and praise and thanks to God. And he cannot help but say something. He cannot be silent. And friends, this is, this is why we exist. That's why we're doing this thing here. It's why Jesus came and died and rose again. So that we may sing the praises of the Lord and not be silent. And those that do not yet know the hope of Jesus might sing his praises and not be silent. And they might have their, their clothes of despair and sackcloth turned into clothes of gladness and righteousness. So that you could exist forever in glorious, happy, joyful worship, decked out in the glowing, glorious clothes of Jesus. Because it's God's desire for you to know him and to love him and to worship him. There is no prophet in your life, like it says in verses 8 through 10. There is no prophet in your life if you do not know and love the one true and living God. And so, perhaps it's not likely because we're here in a seminary context, but if you're here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian, or perhaps you might use the, the, the label Christian to describe yourself, but you've never truly turned away from your sin and, and trusted in Jesus in the way that David does in Psalm 30, you can do that right now. This can be true for you today. You can cry out to God and find mercy at the cross where Jesus died for you. Because God's purpose for your life is that you would experience his steadfast love, which results in genuine, joyful praise and worship. And so, Christian friend, rejoice. You have the hope of a perfectly joyful existence, glory that sings forever. That, that word forever at the end of verse 12 means forever. It means eternity. And, you know, perhaps you're thinking about this and the idea of singing praises to eternity doesn't sound great to you, but that, that singing that you will be singing will come from, from your heart and it will be a joyful noise and it will be the only possible expression of the overwhelming peace and satisfaction you feel because you will have experienced the resurrection at the last day. You will see the Lord's face and give him praise and glory and honor and worship forever. On June 3rd, 1923, Almost exactly 100 years ago, the Reverend Nelson read a statement at the very first dedication service of West End Baptist Church. It came from the, what we might call the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, and Reverend Nelson said these words about our source of joy, the one who draws us up. The community of saints at West End Baptist Church said that they believed that the salvation of sinners is holy of grace through the mediatorial or the, the priestly offices of the Son of God, who by the appointment of the Father freely took upon him our nature, yet without sin, honored the divine law by his personal obedience, and by his death made a full atonement for our sins. That having risen from death, he is now enthroned in heaven. And this is my favorite part, uniting in his wonderful person, the tenderest sympathies with divine perfections, he is in every way qualified to be a suitable, a compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. So friends, lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our suitable, compassionate, and all-sufficient Savior. Lift up Jesus because he has raised us out of death. 
He has raised us out of wrath. He has raised us out of pride. And He has raised us out of despair. All because of His life and death and resurrection. Because He was brought up from the grave. We have that same hope ourselves. And we'll be celebrating this forever. And that means forever. Please join me in prayer. Lord, You are good. Thank You for giving us this moment. Help us to not just be hearers, but doers, and to joyfully celebrate the resurrection and the hope that we have forever. Thank you for giving us the hope and perspective of your own glorious goodness. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.